This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Countdown, Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, Slate Magazine, Le Show, and It's All Politics from NPR. to give him credit. He's a deeply conservative senator from Oklahoma, and he's not playing. He's going to take a very emotional question from someone who's got a health care issue, a real one, not one that's made up from the town hall crazies, etc., as she's going to explain her husband has a real problem she needs to deal with. And Coburn's response is amazing in its callousness. I believe Rick Sanchez is going to explain this on CNN. Let's watch. Senator Coburn, we need help. My husband has traumatic brain injury. His health insurance will not cover him to eat and drink. And what I need to know is, are you going to help him where he can eat and drink? We left the nursing home and they told us we're on our own. He left with the feeding too. I've been working with him, but I'm not a speech pathologist, a professional that takes six years for a master's, and I'm trying to get him to eat and drink to get him to speak Well, I think, first of all, yeah, we'll help. Uh, the first thing we'll do is see what we can do individually to help you uh, through our office. Uh, but the other thing that's missing in this debate is us as neighbors helping people that need our help. Uh, you know, we, we tend to... Uh, the idea that the government is the solution to our problems is an inaccurate, a very inaccurate statement. Government... Well, what's interesting about that is that Senator Coburn just essentially said the government is not the solution. But then you have to ask yourself, he just told her to come and see him isn't he the government? By the way, after helping her, what will he do about the other 46,999,000 Americans who don't have insurance and the thousands upon thousands of Americans who say they do have insurance, but like her, they're not getting coverage? Look, Sanchez is exactly right about that. And uh, one, if his office does help, they are the government. That's the government helping. That's a great irony pointed out by Sanchez. Uh, number two, neighbors? Really? You think if she went to her neighbors and said, hey, you know what, my husband's got an illness, and um, can you guys all help out? Can you give me 100 bucks? Can you give me 1,000 bucks? Can you give me 2,400 bucks? You know, might it happen? Yeah, it has happened before. I've seen, you know, amazing stories on the Internet or, you know, uh, reports from local uh, neighborhood. Now, but think about this. Number one, most likely it won't. But let's say that it did happen. What happens the next time another neighbor has a problem and they need to raise tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars? Okay, then all the neighbors chip in again. What happens when the third neighbor and the fourth neighbor and the eighth neighbor and the twelfth neighbor have problems? Because everybody has health problems at some point and a lot of times it's catastrophic. Do the neighbors keep giving money after money after? At what point do you think the neighbor says, you know what, I think I've given enough money to my neighbors here? Especially if they're Republican conservative neighbors who believe in throwing bootstraps at you. How much money do you think they're going to give you? 
Is that a rational way of doing healthcare in the country? Where you go with a tin cup to all your neighbors and say, oh, my husband has this problem, my wife, my daughter has this problem, can you please put a little bit in the tin cup? Are we going to become a nation of beggars? Where we go and we have a health care problem and nobody will take care of it, our insurance won't cover us, the government apparently will not step in under any circumstances if you believe what Coburn believes, and that we have to go and say, please, please, please help me. And if you cry enough, that a senator might help you. But mainly he's going to tell you to go ahead and piss off. Because if you didn't get it, that's exactly what Coburn just said there. He... I can translate Coburn's message of, hey, the government's not the answer, go ask your neighbor. It's two words, and my friend Ed Reed knows all about it. Hell no! No, I am not going to help you, is what Coburn said. Hey, your insurance kicked you out? Don't worry about it. Tr Remember what Michael Steele said? Trust the corporations. The private corporations will do right. Oh, they didn't do right by you, and now you're in a world of trouble. Well, it's too bad you don't have a public option where you could choose to go with a government-run option, which couldn't possibly kick you off because the government is bad and evil. So, as your husband suffers through all of that, remember, trust the private corporations. And if you're in real trouble, go beg your neighbors. And all, all the feelings you Senate Democrat Kent Conrad, who ranks 35th out of 537 in the combined Senate House rankings for most contributions from health care industries, is there are not the votes in the United States Senate for a public option. But in our fifth story in the countdown, the more salient voice might be that of the progressive Democratic lawmaker Anthony Weiner of New York, now saying that without a public option in the administration's health care proposal, President Obama could stand to lose the votes of 100 Democrats in the House. That would leave him perhaps 60 votes short of passage of any reform bill there. Pissing off Peter and Tom and Dick and Harry and Louise to assuage Paul, only Paul. The White House having hinted over the weekend that it might be willing to abandon the public option, including a hint from the president himself on Saturday. The public option, whether we have it or we don't have it, is not the entirety of health care reform. This is just one sliver of it, one aspect of it. And by the way, it's both the right and the left that have become so fixated on this that they forget everything else. Because everything else is window dressing, Mr. President. On Sunday, Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, asked to comment on the President's remarks, expanded on the hint. 
he continues to be very supportive of some options for consumers. What we don't know is exactly what the Senate Finance Committee is likely to uh, come up with. They've been more focused on a co-op, uh, not-for-profit co-op as a competitor, uh, as opposed to a, a straight government-run program. And I think what's important is choice and competition. And I'm convinced at the end of the day the plan will have both of those. But that is not the essential element. A co-op, a cooperative, government-influenced but not government-run health care component in the system, precisely the kind of system authored by the aforementioned Senator Conrad in North Dakota. The fact of the matter is there are not the votes in the United States Senate for the public option. There never have been. So to uh, continue to chase that rabbit, I think, uh, is just a wasted effort. Besides which, think of the wasted campaign contribution, Senator. Speaking of wasted effort, one reform-minded Democrat warning that by abandoning the public option, the White House could end up losing far more support than it stands to gain from anywhere else. Congressman Anthony Weiner of New York telling CNBC, quote, the president does seem like he's moving away from the public plan, and if he does, he's not going to pass a bill. Later, the congressman saying that the president could lose the support of 100 Democrats in the House if he does not hold firm on the public option. The White House seeming to want to put the toothpaste back into the tube at least some of it, first by suggesting that Secretary Sebelius misspoke, then by saying in a statement that, quote, nothing has changed. The president has always said that what is essential, that health care, uh, that health insurance reform lower costs, ensure that there are affordable options for all Americans and increase choice and competition in the health insurance market. He believes that the public option is the best way to achieve these goals. Today, the president addressing veterans, a segment of the population that already receives government-run health care and superlative health care at that, the VA consistently outranking private systems in the quality of health care it provides patients, according to a recent study by the conservative Rand Corporation. In Phoenix, the president promising the vets that their excellent government-provided benefits will not change. Since there's been so much misinformation out there about health insurance reform, let me say this. One thing that reform won't change is veterans' health care. No one is going to take away your benefits. That is the plain and simple truth. We're expanding access to your health care, not reducing. Now, as to everybody else, let's call in our own Howard Feynman, senior Washington correspondent for Newsweek magazine. Howard, good evening. Hi, Keith. The White House is claiming almost simultaneously that the public option is not essential and that nothing has changed. Um, these would seem to be mutually exclusive. What's actually going on right now? Well, not unless you think it was never essential. Mm. And my sense of it is, and it has been for a long time, even going back to the rhetoric in the campaign, that Barack Obama has been much more interested in the idea of universality and in making history that way uh, than in the public option per se. But if it is a bargaining chip, I think he's, he's playing it way too early. It's like sort of those, those uh, poker tournaments on, uh, you know, the Texas Hold'em poker tournaments, but he's turning over all his cards in advance. He's not helping his cause here. He's looking weak as he negotiates with people who don't really want to negotiate with him. And um, perhaps, uh, I don't want to lapse into poker terminology, but perhaps <laughs> knocking over the hand of the, of the people who he supposedly uh, are on his side of the table and say, oh, look what they've got. Anthony yeah. Weiner's point, if you abandon the public option, you might lose 100 Democrats uh, who would abandon that, the president in the House. And even if, if Weiner is exaggerating slightly, Jane Hampshire pointed out today, the end of last month, 57 Democrats in the House signed a letter that said simply they, they cannot vote for a bill without the minimum of a public option, and 57 
Democratic votes going against this would be enough to kill the whole thing, too. What is the White House strategy here? I mean, you eliminate the public option and enough Democrats vote no to kill reform. If that happens that way, it's not the Republicans who killed reform. It's the president who killed reform. Right. I think what's happening, based on talking to some Democratic leaders on the Hill today, uh, Keith, is, is that the White House and the Democrats are going to tack back the other direction. What they're going to look for is a way to make a, 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 a broad enough bill uh, to the liking of liberal Democrats to have it pass in the Senate under that reconciliation special rule by 50, 51 votes mm -hmm. and make it liberal enough to get enough House Democrats to go, in law, go along even without the so-called public option. They'll try to dress it up in all kinds of other ways, co-ops, extension of Medicaid, toward universality, and achieve, try to declare victory and get enough House Democrats to go along. That's my sense of what's going to happen. But there is now also a report that the House will delay its vote on the final health care reform bill until the end of next month in order to provide, the terminology was, a cooling off period from these raucous town meetings. I mean, who's, who thinks that everybody wants this to cool off? I mean, Chuck Grassley boasted that he was able to con the White House into delaying it past the recess, which permitted this farce about death panels and watering the tree of liberty and this you know, quasi-insurrectionist garbage to, to foment. Why on earth would the Republicans Republicans want it to cool down. Who, who's the, who are the amateurs in this game thinking it's going to cool down if this goes till the end of September? Uh, I think that's been a fundamental mistake of the White House all along, sad to say, uh, that they thought that the Republicans would sit down and really, really negotiate. I don't think that's happening at all. I think the Republicans decided long ago that they were going to slow walk it and try to kill it and, and, and try to obstruct it with a smile. And of course, now once they've left the Hill, there's no smile. They're, instead, they're guns at the town hall meetings. So I don't think that tenor is going to change at all. I don't think there'll be any cooling off period. I think the more that the president tries to give away in, in the name of trying to achieve bipartisanship, the more recalcitrant the Republicans will become because they smell blood at this point. It was uh, three years ago Donald Rumsfeld said it in an entirely different context, and I find myself agreeing with him. Appease the wrong people, and uh, you have to be intellectually or morally confused to do so. And he's not necessarily trying to say God can't be trusted yet, but someone plays it with tricks on that kid. There's certain situations, painful deviations, but somehow we always get stuck in the middle of this and that, and man, he should try less. Every time he's rejected, man, he loses affection. But don't we all, don't we just gotta give a little time? Maybe I'll give up in the call instead of making him confused. What a terrible thing for you to National Committee got some attention recently for sending out a questionnaire that suggested that Republicans would be denied health care in what it called a Democrat-imposed health care rationing system. Another question in the same survey asked, quote, does it concern you that the liberal media has gone to unprecedented levels to only give Obama's views on health care and no one else's, close quote. Really? No one else's? 
When the Project for Excellence in Journalism looked at coverage of the health care debate in 2009, it found that protests against the reform proposals were the second most frequent topic of coverage. PEJ director Tom Rosenstiel told PBS's NewsHour on August 31st, quote, the protests have gotten more coverage actually than description of the health care plans and twice as much coverage as the stories about the state of the health care system, close quote. Well, since the protests often feature alarmist misinformation about death panels and the like, you might imagine that people could get some mistaken ideas about the proposals. And an NBC Wall Street Journal poll released August 19th did find that 45% of respondents thought health care reform would allow the government to decide when to stop giving medical care to the elderly. Another 50% thought it would allow tax dollars to pay for abortions, while 55% said it would provide coverage to undocumented immigrants. None of this is true. The level of misinformation was particularly high among Fox News viewers, 75% of whom said the reform would let the government make end-of-life decisions. Fox, it should be noted, features about six guests opposing health care reform for every reform advocate, according to a mini-study released by Media Matters on August 12th. You can't say for sure, of course, that makes Fox viewers particularly confused, but it can't help. and the speculating about how President Obama is going to handle the biggest policy challenge of his young administration. With the previous administration handing off to him two wars and the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, but also huge Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, President Obama decided to try to do something really hard in his first year in office. As you can probably say in your sleep by now, the need to reform America's health care system has been on presidential agendas since the 1940s. Truman tried it. Nixon tried it. Clinton tried it. They've all watched the proportion of our economy that we devote to health care grow and grow and grow and grow, even as the number of uninsured people continues to rise, even as the other industrialized countries we compete with get better outcomes, that their populations are happier with, with universal coverage, without spending the extra trillion dollars a year or so that we somehow set on fire, I mean, pay to insurance companies. Other presidents have noticed for generations now that the effect on our economy of our inability to deal with health care is like trying to drive somewhere with a trailer hitched to the back of the car that's got two flat tires and we keep piling more and more and more weight on it. We have known for years that we can't put this off forever. We have got to fix this health care system. Actually, what we, what we need to do is build some sort of healthcare system. We don't have a system now. We have haphazardly grown this thing that is a collage of relatively unregulated, expensive, for-profit insurance markets, and we just hope that'll work out for people. Except for the population groups for whom we can't bear to just 
see the impact of just having private insurance. For those groups, we step up. We step up for our veterans. We promise veterans that they will be covered and they get their care from the VA and from TRICARE for Life. We step up for the elderly too. They all get Medicare, government provided single payer that most older people in this country will fight to the death to defend. We step up for kids in this country. More than six million American kids are covered by S-CHIP, the state kids health insurance program championed by the late Senator Ted Kennedy. This is what passes for a healthcare system in the richest, most ambitious nation on earth. Programs that work, that represent a moral public commitment to making sure specific favored population groups are covered, and then a totally dysfunctional, out of control, expensive, dissatisfying, bureaucratic, inefficient, but massively profitable private for-profit system for everyone else. Building a real healthcare system, taking on this most difficult of all the political fights in American politics, is what the new president, Barack Obama, decided to try to do in his first year in office. And as the nation buries the man most identified with the fight for universal health care, the man whose very eventful 47 years in the U.S. Senate are most defined by his work toward health care reform, some of the suspense about whether or not President Obama is going to succeed at this and how is over. Before Ted Kennedy died, the committee he chaired in the U.S. Senate passed his health reform bill. It calls for major reform of the private insurance markets and for Americans to have the choice of buying into a Medicare-type system if they want to. It's not exactly Medicare for all like he pushed for in the past, but it still would be a big leap forward. The political question of the summer was how a bill like Kennedy's could get through the next hurdles in Congress, specifically a second Senate committee that inexplicably had decided to let three members of the Republican Party have an equal voice in deciding what passed, despite the fact that Republicans are vastly outnumbered on that committee, as they are throughout the Senate, because frankly, Republicans got creamed in the last election. Now today, that question can be answered. The Republicans on the Finance Committee, and in general, are not going to support Kennedy's health reform bill or any health reform bill. They're just not. One or two or three of them may peel off from their party ultimately and support it as individuals, but party as a whole? No, nada, nuh-uh, not gonna do it. And as of today, the suspense is over because the White House appears to have finally received that message that the Republicans are not going to help. Here's Press Secretary Robert Gibbs speaking today about the likelihood of getting any Republican votes. It looks like Republicans are stepping away from seeking uh, a bipartisan solution. Some of the comments that, that have been made, it, it certainly seems to suggest, I think, to anybody that reads them, uh, that they're, they seem to be less interested in the bipartisanship they talked about only a few weeks ago. So, at the end of a long, hot, politically dirty August, what has finally convinced the White House of this? What has finally convinced the White House that the Republican Party has no intention of supporting health reform? How have they finally come to terms with the fact that whatever they're going to do, they're not going to get any help from the Republican Party to do it? Might have been the fact that one of the three Republicans, those three magic Republicans ostensibly working with Democrats to craft this bipartisan bill, one of them gave this week's Republican radio address in which he shared his belief that health care reform is, you guessed it, really a secret plot to kill old people. The bills would expand comparative effectiveness research. That would be used to limit or deny care based on age or disability of patients. No, it wouldn't. 
But that's Senator Mike Enzi, erstwhile health care reform negotiator, who turns out is a deather. Meanwhile, the Washington Post's Ezra Klein unearthed today a fundraising letter sent out by Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who is the top Republican on health care in the Senate, who with Senator Enzi was also supposedly working on a bipartisan bill with Democrats. In this fundraising letter, Senator Grassley tells his would-be donors, quote, I had to rush you this airgram today. Huh? to set the record straight on my firm and unwavering opposition to government-run health care and ask your immediate support in helping me defeat Obamacare. The simple truth is that I am and always have been opposed to the Obama administration's plan to nationalize health care, period. Period. There you have it. The political blessing of obviousness. Two of the Republicans who had been gifted this inexplicable role in shaping policy because they're the most reasonable guys the Democrats could find to negotiate with, two of those people are spreading the kill old people conspiracy theory and they are raising money on, on their prospects for defeating Obamacare. And the White House now apparently gets it, thanks to the gift of obviousness. So now that we all understand that this is not going to be a bipartisan thing, the real question, the really important question moving forward, is what can Democrats really get done on this age-old American political problem if they've got zero Republican votes? Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend The Heavy Hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America, the audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best. Today's story is called McCants and McShouldn't. At a Kansas City forum, John McCain and Mitch McConnell show why bipartisanship on health care is impossible. And it's written by Christopher Beam. Nothing makes me more angry, said Senator Mitch McConnell at a health care town hall in Kansas City this week, than the suggestion that America does not already have the finest health care in the world. Senator John McCain, appearing alongside him, agreed when he said, the quality of health care in America is the best in the world. Contrast that with what healthcare journalist T. R. Reed writes in his new book comparing various global healthcare systems. Today, any U.S. politician who dared to make that claim would be hooted out of the room. Reed clearly is yet to visit Kansas City. At the hour-long forum Monday morning, McConnell and McCain laid out the GOP's closing arguments against healthcare reform and showed why the chances of healthcare bipartisanship are fast approaching zilch. The first problem is that Republicans and Democrats can't even agree there's a problem. McCain and McConnell say we're number one in health care, while Democrats agree with the World Health Organization that we're more like number 37. Democrats say there are 47 million uninsured Americans. McCain and McConnell, meanwhile, are skeptical. I don't question that number in summary, McCain said, but I think when you break it down, it gets more interesting. For example, he said 5 million are college students, 
$9 million are people making $75,000 a year or more. $10 million are non-citizens. $11 million are eligible for Medicaid or S-CHIP but haven't enrolled. So really, he said, we're talking about 12 to 15 million who are uninsured today. McCain and McConnell also questioned the Democrats' plans for an ambitious government overhaul of health care, emphasizing incremental reform instead. Let's tackle this with precision, said McConnell, rather than massive overreach. What would these precise, targeted policies be? McCain talked about wellness and fitness, outcome-based treatment, such as doing what works, and eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse, all components of the Democrats' health care plan. McCain also mentioned tort reform, which he estimated would save $100 billion a year. But he and McConnell drew the line at creating a massive, audacious government-run system. Who's right? Again, depends whom you ask, or rather, when you ask. As McCain pointed out during the town hall, the Congressional Budget Office said in July that the House version of the health care bill would add to the deficit during the next 10 years, not reduce it. Another CBO estimate, also in July, said that a public option alone would net $150 billion over 10 years. The CBO has yet to score the cooperative model being hammered out by the Senate Finance Committee. Even if Republicans and Democrats did agree on the solution, they don't agree on how to pay for it. McCain and McConnell repeatedly stated that the Obama plan would be paid for on the back of small businesses. By this, they mean that raising taxes on the top bracket, as Democrats have proposed, would hurt small business owners who pay business taxes as personal income tax. But the House legislation carves out an exemption for small businesses, and Obama has argued that reform would help small businesses by offering plans with lower rates. McCain reminded the audience of his campaign proposal to pay for reform by capping the employer tax exclusion. That is, requiring that health care benefits received through your employer be taxed just like benefits you buy on your own. This, the CBO recently said, would save about $250 billion, which could help pay for reform. Politically, though, taxing employer benefits would never fly. Unions would object. Businesses would start dropping coverage. And Obama would indirectly break his promise that if you like your plan, you can keep it. As closing arguments go... It's too expensive is pretty strong for the Republicans. It capitalizes on anxieties about the spending explosion of Obama's first seven months. McCain rattled off the costs of the stimulus bill, TARP, the budget, the auto bailout. It prevents the party from having to provide concrete alternatives to the Democrats' plan. Do less is easier than do this instead. And it returns the GOP to its small government roots. Never a bad thing post-Bush. This approach all but precludes bipartisanship. If they can't agree on the health care problem, how to fix it, or how to fund it, that doesn't leave much room for common ground. In a Sunday New York Times op-ed, Bill Bradley argued that a bipartisan compromise is obvious. Combine universal coverage with malpractice tort reform in health care. He, too, has yet to visit Kansas City.
professor at the University of Buffalo, uh, Steve Hoffman, and I looked at some of the numbers behind healthcare. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, when asked, for example, 91% uh, of Republicans think the proposal would increase wait times for surgeries, uh, but only 37% of Democrats uh, think the same thing. And he said, wait, now, it can't both be right, right? And how come the numbers are so stark, 91% to 37%? Now, if you were looking at this logically, the numbers should be a hell of a lot closer than that. Why are some people absolutely convinced, based on the same facts, that it would cause longer wait times, and other people are absolutely convinced it won't? Now, this, that's just one example, but you can go on every single issue on health care reform, and you get those kind of stark numbers, right? So he decided to do a little study on it and try to figure out why. Now, uh, that's as an example. but. The clearest example that he could find uh, was uh, the Iraq issue. Now, how Saddam Hussein is not connected to 9-11. Now, everybody knows that, well, except everybody doesn't know it, right? Now, even Dick Cheney and George Bush have admitted that, yes, Saddam Hussein has nothing to do with it. 9-11 Commission reports that absolutely Saddam Hussein not linked to the attacks against the United States on 9-11. Yet, some people still believe that. In fact, uh, I've told you many times before, in 2006 they did a survey, 43% of Americans still believe that, which is a giant number. So he wanted to find out what was happening here. And he took 49 guys, uh, or people overall, who believed that, um, that Saddam Hussein was connected to 9-11. And he wanted to test that if this uh, belief was based on emotion or logic. So now we know logically where the facts lie in this case. And he said, look, obviously this could apply to liberals and Democrats as well on another issue. That they make similar kind of decisions, uh, but this was just a stark example, so he used Republicans in this case. When given the facts over and over again, different facts that showed that in fact Saddam Hussein was not in any way connected to the 9-11 attacks, 48 out of the 49 people involved in the study said, no, he still is. Now, they <laughs> would have literally no facts on their side. And over and over again in the study, they'd say, I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but I know it. And what they observed in doing this is how people would say, I know what we did in Iraq was the right thing. So Saddam must have been involved in 9-11. And this would happen over and over again, that they would work backwards in logic, meaning this is the position I want to have, or I have for emotional reasons, or I have for whatever reasons, right? This is the conclusion that I have reached. So no matter how much evidence you give me, I'm going to disregard it. And I'm going to find other reasons to justify this. And it turns out this is called motivated reasoning, okay? And it's two great terms out of this. And if you break that down, it's exactly right. It's not logical reasoning, it's motivated reasoning. They have a motivation. They want to reach a certain conclusion. So they're not interested in what the facts are. And then another word that they use is inferred justification. What, the, what does that mean? Well, you know, 
If we attacked Iraq, which is what a lot of the respondents said, then it must have been for the right reason, and it must have been because Saddam attacked us on 9-11. Their justification was inferred, even though they were just given facts that that was not the case. It's, it's really an eye-opening study. And, you know, now he says he's a, you know, professor of sociology, and he says it could definitely apply to Democrats as well, and, and, I, and I believe that. But in our experience, now, I'm, of course, I might be biased here, and now I'm putting the, the study aside for a second. In our experience, it seems that this is something conservatives do all the time. Like, you will give them facts. Here is the certificate of birth for Barack Obama. Here are newspaper articles at the time saying, hey, this little kid, Barack Hussein Obama, was born here with absolutely no motivation as to why anybody would make that up. And they'll look at all those facts and go, no, yeah, Obama not born in the U.S. You'll show them how the public option would uh, n not involve a doctor getting between you, I mean, the government worker getting between you and your doctor. They'll go, no, I think he's going to get involved anyway. The, the, you'll show them the provision that it has no death panel, and they'll say, no, I still see a death panel there. It's because of motivated reasoning. It's because of inferred justification. And what's really ironic is it's because they're making decisions based on their emotion and not logic. It's ironic because that is the very same thing that they claim liberals do. If you listen to Rush Limbaugh and other conservative talk show hosts uh, and Fox News channel, they say that all the time. Ah, oh, yeah, liberals are just, you know, you're all emotional. You don't know how to use logic. Boy, isn't that ironic. Because that's exactly what's happening in all of these cases here. Uh, because they, their emotion is, we had to attack. Their emotion is, the government's out to get me. Because those emotions have been stoked. And their reaction is, hence, Obama's plan must be a government takeover. Hence, Saddam Hussein must have done 9-11. Hence, I don't like Obama, I voted against him, and I was told that it was going to be disastrous and that he wasn't really one of us, so he must not be a citizen because of inferred justification. You see how it works? And all of these post hoc, as they say, post hoc search for justification comes later after they've already reached their conclusion. It, you know, it's also a, a damning way that our political uh, system works here in this country. And I'm sure, of course, this doesn't just apply to America. I'm sure it applies to humans everywhere. Uh, because if you can't really convince people with logic, that's scary. If you can't convince them with facts, that's scary. And it, it should inform us as to how we should approach things to some degree. Uh, you have, look, as scary as it is, this is a fact. And we have to adjust to this. And the Democrats don't do nearly a, as good a job as the Republicans do in appealing to people's emotions. You know, I don't want them to fear monger like the Republicans. I don't want them to run those same kind of, you know, purposely misleading uh, things. But if they're playing based on the playing field of facts and these guys are playing on the uh, playing field of emotion and we know which one works better, you have to think about it a little bit. But if you feel like loving me, if you got my notion, a second that emotion. Say, if you feel like giving me that emotion, a second that emotion. Maybe you think that love will tie you down.
so damn important he had to get an urgent meeting. I mean, you know, I'm trying to get a handle on a semi-final draft of a health care speech. Yeah, and, 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 and that's what's so important. We've, mm-hmm. we've talked about the drafts, and, mm-hmm. and they're just not there yet. And, and this one's got to be there. I mean, I just wanted to... I just want to have a few minutes with you to emphasize that. Okay. And just sit down and, and tell me where you think there is. I mean, we agreed we're going to stick a fork in the public option, right? Mr. President, public schmublic, this isn't about that. This is about you. Me? Mm-hmm. I've got good health care. I'm the president. This is about you continuing to have good health care by continuing to be the president. This speech is about you taking your presidency back. <laughs> I didn't know I lost it. No. I mean, you know, I'm still shooting hoops in the White House gym. Yeah, for now. I, but while you were at the Vineyard, our Republican friends were out at the demolition derby track, and the chassis they were aiming at was yours. <sighs> yeah, we, we, we've talked about this. They're, they're the opposition. They somehow think that's their only job is to oppose. I mean, you know, maybe I overstated their interest in bipartisanship. Maybe. Maybe. When you've got Chuck Grassley sounding like Glenn Beck, there's no maybe about it. I, you know, I don't want to say I told you so, sir, but... From day one, it was clear to some of us that the only Republicans interested in bipartisanship were dead Republicans. That's their choice. They'll take the heat for being obstructionists. I mean, you know, they're wasting time and energy on opposing my speech to students. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be painfully, humorously obvious by Tuesday evening that the only secret message in that speech is work hard, study hard, and you can be like me. And for the millions of people who are convinced by the reaps that you're a stealth Marxist fascist dictator on the march, that's a very frightening message. Look, you've spent August relaxing and eulogizing, and they've spent August driving your poll numbers down to a normal level. The instant Rushmore days are over. Okay. And with the health care speech, we start reversing that trend. We agree on that. Yes, sir. But you've got to tell people exactly what you want in this bill and exactly why it's good for them. The, the drafts I've seen so far have, have still been a little, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say squishy. You, you do want to say it. I do. But out of respect, I'm not going to. Right. Look, Democrats in Congress have a job approval rating that's lower than Sarah Palin, and she doesn't have a job confront them, threaten them. That's what looks like leadership on television. Yeah, but these are the people we actually have to cut the deal with. Show business bluster doesn't get that done. Nobody in Congress is afraid of you. I I work there, sir. It's a very simple animal. If they don't fear you, they roll you. All right, look. You know, there there were things we absolutely had to be in a hurry to accomplish, right? Keeping the economy from collapsing, Mm -hmm. keeping Afghanistan from cratering. Mm -hmm. Then we were in a hurry to get health care passed. That that scared some people. I understand that. I want to communicate that. I want to express that now that the moment of urgency has passed, that the need for drama has waned, that we can be strong and sensible and patient, and in the fullness of time, with plenty of opportunity for debate and understanding, we can fulfill our responsibilities. You're kidding, right? What? We've got September and October, and then, boom, Congress starts noticing there's an election year coming straight at them, and they can't be afraid of you anymore. They're too busy being afraid of the voters, and we've lost them. I, I Look, I know you hate drama, well, but this is really a dramatic moment. The Reaps think they've got you on the ropes. They shook Van Jones loose. They've pushed us away from public option. They're smelling blood, and unlike most of us, they like that smell. Hmm. Cheney said four words that made people follow him. After 9-11, he said... The gloves came off. Tell America that the gloves are coming off, sir, and you've got them. This country doesn't like gloves. Look, I don't hate drama. I just don't think it works. 
The only reason I picked up the no drama thing was I was watching a lot of NBA hoops on TNT and they kept repeating the network slogan, we know drama, and Gibbs said, ooh, hey. Anyway, this speech should fight fear with hope. Hope's my brand. I'm not the fear guy. When I can convince people to have hope, we don't have to be in a hurry. You know, in a, in a way, you know, that's the lesson of New Orleans. Okay, sir. Let me know when I can pencil over the draft. You got it. You lie. You no, lie. I, I, I am. No, 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 no. You lie. I think there's still room for civility in this podcast. Liar. You know what you're channeling? Yeah. You're channeling some of the elements, just a tiny percent, perhaps, of the town hall spirit from August and bringing it into the chamber of the United States Congress or perhaps even, yay, into this. But it's working. Look at the Barack Obama's uh, approval numbers, down to 51%. Wait a minute. How long have they been going down to 51%? Haven't they been going down to 51% for quite a while? I'm not sure if much has changed since the outburst we saw at the town hall meetings this summer. But Actually, you know where 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 the slippage appears to have happened was more in July than in August. His numbers came down more in July and then stabilized somewhere around in August as there was probably a certain amount of backlash in response to some of that negative energy in the town halls, which, of course, took a lot of the momentum out of the health care debate. So the president tried to restore some of that momentum this week uh, when he gave his speech to a joint session of Congress. The time for bickering is over. The time for games has passed. Now is the season for action. Now is when we must bring the best ideas of both parties together and show the American people that we can still do what we were sent here to do. Now is the time to deliver on health care. I think that we, what we heard there is the essence of the president's message. Some rhetorical flourish, uh, some argument, some evidence, but essentially it was a pep rally for the Democratic side of the chamber. And not only a pep rally for the Democrats, an opportunity for Democrats to unite because the Democrats are not talking to themselves either. In the past week, we saw Nancy Pelosi saying there's no way uh, a bill gets passed without a public option. Max Baucus says there's no way a public option passes the Senate. They're both right. Nancy Pelosi's not going to get a bill out of the House without public option in it. And Max Baucus is right in saying public option is not going to survive in the Senate. There aren't enough votes for it. There are too many Democrats who have too many reservations. But there is one bill that's going to come ultimately come out. That is correct. And in the conference between the House and the Senate that will follow on the passage of whatever bills we do get out of them, if we do, that's where the decision will really have to be made. And it won't be a public option like the House wants. It'll be something else like a trigger or a fallback or some other language that allows the Democrats to say, oh, well, we got enough and vote for it. 
If they get that, then they can pass the conference report without a filibuster and probably with just a majority of votes in both chambers. Obviously, the uh, the goal for President Obama was to reclaim the conversation. In other words, take back the leadership of the conversation, which he seemed to have ceded. Now, I do remember, and I'm Ron, I know you remember too, uh, September 1993, Bill Clinton gave his speech on health care to a joint session of Congress. And when it was over, we thought... Boy, he did the job. He knocked it out of the park, even though it was the wrong speech in the teleprompter. You remember that story? But uh, ultimately, we were wrong. We were wrong in part because we assumed that Congress would, in some sense or another, get its arms around what the Clintons were proposing, both Bill and Hillary. They were doing was, more than proposing. They were, they were my way the highway. That's right. right. And ultimately, that turned out to be the wrong strategy, at least for 1993-94. Uh, Bill Clinton's popularity, for reasons that were not necessarily related to health care, was descending rapidly. He had a lot of other problems. The country was not necessarily with him on health care, and they certainly weren't on board for the specific plan that he and Hillary insisted on. He was on. a minority president. He got you know less than a majority of the vote. percent of the vote. And the Democrats were in Congress for 40 years, and so there was a tiring of that as well. That's right. They were a weak majority. Right. They didn't know just how much of a hollowed-out majority they were. This is a different situation. President Obama is a majority president. He has a little bit more momentum. The health care situation has deteriorated further in the ensuing 15 years, and much of the health care industry, other than the insurance industry, has changed its mind about many of these issues and is much more supportive of some sort of new system. Now, that doesn't mean that this Congress is going to succeed either. It just means that it's a different situation, and we are at a different point in the legislative calendar, and there is more momentum in the odd-numbered year. Clinton never really had a good shot at getting it done in 93. He had to depend on it getting done in 94. An election year turned out to be a highly contentious one. So, the deck was really stacked against the Clintons, a lot worse than it seems to be stacked at this point against the Democrats and Barack Obama on health care. Well, we know that there are several intended audiences for President Obama's speech. Obviously, it was the American public because some polls show that they're not convinced that the, the Obama plan, whatever that plan is, is the right way to go. Uh, and, of course, we talked about the warring Democrats, but then there's also Republicans, too. You know that he would not want, President Obama would not want a bill without any Republican support, not because he can't get 60 votes. He may very well get 60 votes if there's a new senator appointed in Massachusetts or whatever. But obviously there is a reach out, some of a reach, part of a reach out to Republicans. He mentioned John McCain by name. He mentioned Grassley and, and Hatch when he was talking about Senator Kennedy. And he may and, have actually been thinking about Olympia Snow throughout that whole time. So and, she's probably a better chance than any of those three. And yet shortly after the speech, Olympia Snow came out with a release saying, I will not support anything with a public option. Right. So you have all kinds of pushback from the Republicans. The president chose at a moment when he could have said, okay, look, the partisan approach isn't working. We really do want to do this in a bipartisan fashion. If you look at all the great changes that Congress has passed, there has been at least a measure of bipartisanship about them, civil rights, Medicare, and so on. Sure, there was opposition from some parts of Congress, but there was some measure of at least nominal bipartisanship, and the president wants at least that much for this big change as well. I feel like he made the decision that he is, at this point, just trying to marshal the forces. It sounded like part of his campaign from 2008. He's marshaling the forces that elected him president and trying to get health care done 
on that energy. I mean, we've seen many states of the union and joint sessions of Congress meetings in the past where the president's party will be up and applauding. And I mean, I think uh, uh, Biden and, and Pelosi must have lost 20 pounds jumping up and with all that, ex you know, <laughs> applauding the opposition. In this case, the Republicans sitting on their hands. And of course, it was also the spectacle of Republicans waving. Yes, we do have our own plan. And they would wave their plan on health care. And, and one had a little sign that said, what bull? But there was also the spectacle of that South Carolina Republican Joe Wilson, that was not expected. That's right. He had heard enough when the president started saying that some of the criticisms of the health proposals were lies, specifically uh, the alle allegations that we're going to pull the plug on grandma because uh, something in the bill said there would be end-of-life counseling, that sort of thing. Uh, and when the president used that term lie, you could feel the tension rising in the room. You could hear Republicans starting to grumble audibly, uh, talk amongst themselves. There was a building sense of tension. And then there was this moment. There are also those who claim that our reform efforts would ensure illegal immigrants. This, too, is false. The reforms, the reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegally. I heard the interruption and I heard the booing and I didn't know what was said until later. And just the thought of a member of Congress, no matter what party, talking to a president, no matter what party, calling him a liar uh, from the floor of the Congress is, is, is just something I you don't see every day. We have heard heckling from the floor of the House before. They booed George Bush. They booed George right. Bush. There was a moment when Dick Armey was a majority leader in the mid-1990s when he was talking back to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was giving a State of the Union address. Now, it wasn't as punctuated as this moment was. And Harry Reid, I think on, on Meet the Press, said, I think it was about Yucca Mountain or whatever it was, and called President Bush a liar. But it's different when the president is addressing the nation and Congress to yell it out from the floor of the chamber. Well, it's something that we're not used to. We, we're not used to seeing the British a parliamentary debate. Yeah, yeah. That's right, a parliamentary debate. Now, the Brits will call their prime minister any name in the book. They'll call him things that aren't in the dictionary. But what they wouldn't do is speak that way to the Queen or the king. And we have no head of state other than the president. So for some people, the president is the United States. He's the commander in chief. And you just don't talk to him that way. That undermines the civility, if you will, that is part of our civic religion. attention to those scary stories about how your benefits will be cut, especially since some of the same folks who are spreading these tall tales have fought against Medicare in the past and just this year supported a budget that would essentially have turned Medicare into a privatized voucher program. That will not happen on my watch. I will protect Medicare. 
President Obama tonight firing a bit of a shot across the bow at Republicans, whose party stood against a now very popular government health care program before they started trying to portray themselves as standing for it. Following Senator Ted Kennedy's death two weeks ago, in Washington, the decision was made today about who will chair the Senate Health Committee as Senator Kennedy's successor. And if Ted Kennedy were here today, he'd applaud wildly uh, the fact that Tom Harkin is going to lead his committee. Iowa Senator Tom Harkin will be leading the Senate Health Committee, a friend of the public option and a self-identified progressive populist. He's a senator who was a sponsor of the Americans with Disability Act, Disabilities Act, excuse me. He introduced the Senate version of the Employee Free Choice Act. When he ran for president nearly 20 years ago, he made universal health care part of his presidential announcement. I see an America where health care is available and affordable to all. If there is health care reform in this country this year, it will be because it finds a way through the United States Senate. And if it finds its way through the United States Senate, it will be in part because conservative Democrats have not found a way to block the president's agenda, even if Republicans couldn't, as well as the agenda of the rest of their party. So how are those prospects then? Joining us now is Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer of California. Senator Boxer, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Um, thank you for making your way over from there to yes, here. Yes, isn't that a beautiful sight? This is a great spot from which to watch it. <laughs> what was your reaction to the speech tonight? I was touched. I was moved. I was so happy with the president tonight because he showed, I think, a fierce determination to get this done. And he spoke to our strength, I think, as Americans, all of us, that we have this problem, and it's a moral issue, and we can't turn away from it, and we all have to do our part, and boy, am I ever ready to go. <laughs> I am so ready. As a matter of fact, I bumped into the president, just so lucky. I was on my way back to my little office, and there he came. And a congressman was asking him to do some autographs. I said, I don't want an autograph. I just want to tell you something. And I leaned over, gave him a kiss on the cheek, and said, you hit it out of the ballpark, Mr. President. And you know what he said? He said, now let's get it done. Hmm. And he said that loud. Everyone heard it. Now wow. let's get it done. Somebody else might have said, thank you. You know, I really am glad. Did you really think it was good? Right. He's my friend. He could have said that. He said, now let's get it done. I mean, he was... He's got a, a look of determination on his face I haven't seen in a while. So I think this was the moment we were waiting for. I think he did this, and I really hope now we have the guts to finish this job. And I thought when he talked about Ted Kennedy and he talked about the fact that Ted had written him and said, read this later, you know, after I'm not here anymore, and Ted explained why this is so important. It, it, it really, there was not a sound in that chamber. And uh, the fact that Vicki was there and the children were there, um, you know, sometimes in this world, we don't let ourselves get touched. We feel, oh, is something wrong with us if we feel something? I felt a lot hmm. tonight. And it certainly is making me uh, stronger than ever to get this job done. I have to do it. It's, it's something I promised my constituents I do, and they need it because in California, Rachel, listen to this. A nonpartisan study says by the year 2016, if we don't do anything about this, the average family in California will be paying 41% of its income, 41% of its income for health care premiums. Mm. That's impossible. The whole system will crumble. 
Um, Senator Cornyn on the Republican side tonight, uh, and Charles Bustani, the official Republican respondent tonight from the House, uh, said it's back to the drawing board. What the American people want is for us to start all over, that this essentially making the case that the health care reform thus far this year, since President Obama has been in office, has been wrong-footed and needs to start all over again. What's your response to that? Well, I don't know what their idea is. From what I can tell, it's more the status quo and more tax cuts that people have already gotten it seriously. Um, I don't, I don't see where they're coming from. Now, the president, as strong and tough as he was, he still reached his hand out. He said, look, we're here, but if you're just about the status quo, then I, I don't have time. You know, he was, he said, I don't have time. But if you're serious, let's work together. So he still wants them to come forward, and, and we all want them to come forward. But, but there's no reason to start all over again. We know what's plaguing our people. The fact that they're insecure, that their health care will be there when they need it. The fact that 14,000 Americans every day lose their insurance. The fact that the costs are going out of control. We know what's going on, and uh, there's no reason to start all over again. We need to finish the job that has been begun. Does the job, when it's finished, include a, a public option? David Axelrod just told me in an interview that the president will fight for it. Good. That said, the president tonight also called out progressives. He's called out his progressive friends, uh, essentially, for, for wanting it so much, for prioritizing it so much in the fight. Do you think it ends up in the final bill? That's my goal. Yeah. That's my goal. And, you know, the president was very clear on why it's important, Rachel. You know, he made the case that the estimates are only about 5% of the American people will actually buy into it. But it would be there as a safe haven. It would be there to make sure there's competition so the insurance companies are kept honest. It makes eminent sense. And the president's going to fight for it. A lot of us are going to fight for it. Do you it. vote no if it's and not there in the bill? I never will negotiate on television. <laughs> Uh, well, Barney Frank is waiting to come on. That's his line. Okay. He said he said he turned to a, a reporter and he said, "You don't have a vote. I'm not negotiating with you, Barney. I'm sorry. I stole your line." But it is. It's important enough to fight for, and you're, it is Very your goal important. that it be there. But you won't it predict is. whether or not it's going. And I will fight for it. And let me tell you one of the things I'm going to do. I'm going to say to my colleagues who don't want to vote for this, whatever party they're in. If you don't vote for this, then give up your health insurance. Mm. Because your health insurance is run by the public. It's a government-run plan. And if you don't think it's good enough for you, then drop it. Mm. And then don't offer it. But if you're going to keep it, you better give other people a chance. The president alluded to that tonight. And boy, I was happy. You know, I was glad because how can you say, oh, this is a terrible thing, and then keep the public option yourself? Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, today is random update day, and I'm, I'm hoping to get through these kind of rapid fire. So here we go. Uh, as mentioned on the last episode, I started a raffle idea, uh, giving away free DVDs to members. Uh, well, a very kind listener wrote in and let me know that that's um, essentially and almost definitely illegal. So I'm going to put that on hold for just a little while put some thought behind it and come back to that issue i would come back around to addressing that you know almost immediately except i'm going to be out of town it's really inconvenient it's a bad time for me to be trying to do stuff like that um so let's just 
put that on hold for uh, for a week or so, and I'll, I'll come back to it. Second random update. This past week, Best of Left has been on the homepage of the podcast section in iTunes. For any new listeners, you, you, you may actually be the beneficiary of this campaign, um, but you may not know about it. Back in August, there was a campaign leading up to August 20-something, maybe the 20th, to write in as many reviews as we could get uh, and ended up getting almost 200 on a single day in August asking for iTunes to put the show on the homepage of the podcast section in iTunes and lo and behold two maybe three weeks later it worked now I'm a good and honest person so I'm going to give you all the details and say that you know it's not listed super big and in flashing lights at the top kind of a more modest listing Towards the bottom, there's a whole section on talk politics. And so we're one of the shows listed in that section. But it's there. But then here's the other detail that muddies the water even a little bit more. Uh, Our good friends over at Blast the Right podcast, the other most popular um, independently produced political podcast out there, very similar uh, ratings as this show gets, they were also listed. So, you know, which is great. I'd love to have them there. But we ran a campaign, and Jack Clark didn't. We both got listed. I mean, we both deserve it, that's for sure. But does that mean that the campaign worked? Did it not work? Were we just due? Did we get their attention? And because we got their attention, they thought, well, we'll put these guys in, and and obviously this guy deserved it too. Who knows? No one knows the answer. This is how I would uh, have told this news had I been a conservative. We won. We ran a campaign. We're on the homepage. We did it. We're awesome. I don't know. I know that has a little bit more uh, cathartic feeling to it, but honesty is our downfall. Okay, next random update. This one's way more random. Way back after the election, some of you are going to remember that I said that during the election, I took a photograph. Sorry, not not the election. During the inauguration, I took a photograph, and I thought it was really good, and I entered it into a photo contest. And uh, the winners or, you know, the top 100, like, finalists of this photo contest were going to be displayed at the museum in Washington, D.C. And so I talked about on the show i encouraged everyone to go you know give it a thumbs up on the website the little voting thing on their website and i may have not ever mentioned it after that uh, that one time well i got an email uh recently saying that it had you know that the the display period was over which is reminding me to tell you that it won you know, it, uh, it it didn't win, but it was a finalist, and it got into the top 100 and was on display in the museum downtown in Washington, D.C. for like four months, and supposed to be in a special, you know, collector's book for the inauguration, and it's kind of awesome. So I went down, checked it out, and took a picture of my own picture on the wall, and took a picture with me in front of my picture on the wall, and all that, and I should have mentioned it before. I was proud, I just I always felt like I had other more important things to talk about on the show. That's why it's in the random updates pile. Now, this one is not so much an update. I just wanted to let you know I found this new website um, that I liked and just wanted to pass it on, angrytownhall.com. 
they uh, they're they're doing a great job putting uh, putting a goofy face on the whole socialism idea, and so they're running a campaign against the socialized fire department because socialism is evil in all of its forms. So they're running a campaign saying that the uh, all of our fire departments should be so um, privatized, not socialized, desocialized and privatized, and owned by like Halliburton and Lockheed Martin. So. <laughs> They, they're doing a, a great job, and when I signed up to follow them on Twitter, they wrote back saying, hey, I love your show. And so I said, excellent, I'll give you a shout out. So uh, angrytownhall.com, check that out and support what they're doing. Now, finally, on to kind of the business stuff. Um, Podcast Alley, we're doing all right. We could use 100 more votes. You know how small of a number 100 is? 100 more votes and we'll be totally solid in the top 10 for the rest of the month, and I get to stop talking about it. I love the point in the month when I get to stop talking about Podcast Alley, but it really does help. Keeping us on the on the homepage in Podcast Alley really does get more listeners to find the show, which is why I ask you to vote. And now finally, one more thing, and I, I genuinely don't remember if I mentioned this before, but now officially on the website, Anyone interested in becoming members of the show now have, have the option to pay a yearly fee instead of monthly. And so you get a couple of benefits. A, it costs a little bit less. So instead of, you know, normal monthly is $5 a month. So yearly would be 60 But the yearly membership now is 55 So you get the $5 off and more of the money, a higher percentage of your donation actually goes to support the show instead of going to support the bank fees imposed by PayPal. So it's a great opportunity. If you're interested in being a, a member, that's the way to do it. Of course, now I need to thank members. Michael C. just joined up on September 7th, and I'm mentioning him because he was the very first person to sign up for a yearly membership. Excellent job. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, also just want to thank Sarah S. joined up on August 14th. She didn't do anything extraordinary at all but i'm sure she's a lovely person so of course these two members as well as all the others know that they have the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing they're keeping the show going there's absolutely nothing i'm exaggerating about that members really are keeping the show going the way it's going now and they have access to the best of the left raw feed where we put all of the clips that are going to be in the show as well as some clips that end up not making the final cut in the show so they're kind of bonus and all the clips that are pulled from video or television shows are sent to the raw feed in their original video format. So if you're interested in all that, sign up to be a member today at the website. So finally, that is all for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook. Join our email newsletter. Support the show by writing reviews in iTunes, voting at Podcast Alley, filling out the listener survey listed on the website. Listen to the show on your smartphone without having to sync with your computer by visiting Stitcher.com. Visit the show notes. Those are on the blog where you will find links to all the sources we use and the music used in this episode. Music for this episode is also embedded directly in the show itself. If you're listening on iTunes, when the song you like comes up, a link appears in the bottom left-hand corner to take you directly into the iTunes store where you can buy the song itself. 
So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fun.